0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, as we open this word, we pray that you give us grace as we deal with a difficult topic, Lord. We pray that you would give us understanding and clarity, but also a heart that's ready to receive. A heart that believes that you're here for our good, that all your commands are good for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be here in Matthew 5 and in verse 32, and we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and so that's why we're here. And this morning we're going to talk about divorce. And I don't know what you're probably thinking, you're probably thinking like, after this week in our country, Eric, like maybe you could have brought a more uplifting topic or something like that. And I thought about maybe doing some sort of message related to the elections and stuff. You guys don't want that either though, right? I'm done. Like, are you done? So we're not doing that. Um, We're going to talk about divorce this morning and um, it's a difficult topic and it's something, it's one of the good reasons to go through books of the Bible or to go through sections of the Bible. Here we are going through the Sermon on the Mount and, and I'll tell you just like out of my own flesh and stuff, I'd be very unlikely to go like, hey, you know what we need? We need a message on divorce. But this is an important topic, guys, and you guys would agree with that, I'm sure. Um, Nearly 50% of marriages end in divorce. That statistic's actually decreasing, but so is marriage. Okay, So the reason that statistic's coming down is there's less people getting married in the first place. I know some of you have been divorced. I know that many of you have dealt with divorce as kids in your family. And um, and so one of the benefits of preaching through the Bible is it forces us to deal with topics that we might not you know, find time for otherwise. And we, certainly the Sermon on the Mount done that to us, hasn't it? I feel like I've had a run of, of heavy messages with you guys, and it's the stuff that Jesus brings up in this sermon. So we'll be in Matthew 5, verse 31, and it says this, Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife shall give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And um, I know that for a lot of you this is a difficult topic. Perhaps you have went through a divorce in the past. Maybe it was for unbiblical grounds. And I just want to say to you from the outset that this is not the unpardonable sin. Okay? This is not the unpardonable sin. There is grace for you here. There is grace for all of us. Um, It is not for you to forever wear the scarlet A on your chest. The truth is, is that in God's economy, we are all guilty of sin. And so in the the good news this morning, guys, and whether that's your sin that you kind of think about a lot or there's some other sin, God can make our deepest, most regrettable sins in Jesus like distant memories. And, And I'm sure that if that's your situation this morning, you would love for us to talk about this topic because... I would think that you would be like, you know what, if, there's, if we could do anything to prevent even one unbiblical divorce in our congregation, we should do that thing. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And the first thing to notice, and I think you notice on this scripture reading, is that Jesus limits divorce more than our culture does, big time. And he limited it more than, than it was limited in his time as well. Um, back in ancient times, um, before Moses' law, so like pre-1500 B.C., Divorce was rampant. In fact, um, if you could call it divorce, they didn't really necessarily get married. They would live together, and if it didn't work out, then they would separate. Uh, Around 1500 BC, God gives the law through Moses, and it's in Deuteronomy 24, and he says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, He is to write her a certificate of divorce, put it in her hand, and send her out of his house. So there was a procedure they gave him around 1500 B.C., and that was good. That was an improvement. It was an improvement based on what was going on in the ancient world at the time because before that, a man would divorce his wife for any cause. And so what he's saying here is that a, a man can't divorce his wife for just anything. Okay? And it was men divorcing wives, by the way. You know, we think today where a wife can divorce her husband. But back then, they didn't have the control, right? This was, we're talking, uh, you know, 1500 BC. It was men sending their wives away. And so what Moses' law did is it limited that. It said, no, it has to be for some indecency. Now, that word isn't real clear, but it is really strong. It's a strongly negative word. And many think that probably in Moses' law there, this indecency was, was sexual sin, And it may have been a way for a husband to send his wife away for adultery without bringing formal charges against her, which what would happen to her? Dead, okay? It was a a tough world (laughs) back then. You'd be dead. And so there was this way of kind of sending her away um, for an indecency without bringing formal charges against her. It also said that he had to give her a certificate of divorce. And that was an important thing in that time. It allowed her to remarry. Didn't leave her standing kind of nebulous in the community. It said, no, the, the covenant of marriage has ended here. She can be remarried. Okay, so if we fast forward from 1500 BC up to Jesus's day, there's a debate going on of what is this indecency? And rabbis, as rabbis do, would gather around and they would debate these things. And there were two main camps in this regard. There was the Hillel school and there was the Shammai school. And there's both these rabbis, right? And they had different views on what the indecency was. The, the Shammai group was like, this indecency is something very serious. This is, you know, probably sexual sin or something like that. It's a very, very serious thing. Well, the Hillel school was the more liberal school. And the more liberal school, they said that this indecency could be almost anything. If your wife were to burn dinner twice, it's an indecency, okay? And you could send her away. And think about this in this culture. This is a rough thing for her. She burned dinner twice, and she's out. Um, If she became less attractive, that's an indecency, okay? If she was mouthy, that was an indecency. So anything could be an indecency. In fact, in Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus, which was, is a book in the Apocrypha, not in our Old Testament canon. It says this. This is about 150 B.C. If she will not do as you tell her, get rid of her. Okay? Like, and if you're wondering why this book is not in the Old Testament and that's not enough for you, come up to me. i got other reasons. But, you know, you know, that's a great, you know, you can put that on a coffee cup. You know, like, you know, you're like waking up, sipping your coffee. If she will not do as you tell her, get rid of her. So definitely written by a man there. Um, So that just gives you some thinking of what the Hillel crowd was like. It was kind of like our no-fault divorce now. It was any cause would do. And so the the Hillel school seemed to be the main influence on the religious leaders of that day. Take a look at Matthew 19. If you flip over to Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees came up to Jesus, and they sound like the Hillel school. This is what they said. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay, that's that Hillel thinking, right? And, he, and Jesus said to them, have you not read that he who created them made them male and female and said to them, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God, therefore, has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're quoting that Deuteronomy 24. And he said, because Of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Keep in mind what they're doing here. They're bringing this up to Jesus, not because they want to know, they want to trick him, right? They want to trick him into contradicting the Old Testament law. And you know what else? who else they want to trick him into contradicting? Herod. Because at this time, there was this quote-unquote king, he was kind of a small-time king, in that area, Herod, and, um, and he had formed this kind of shady marriage with his brother's ex-wife, Herodias. And so what they're thinking is, okay, here's what we need to do. Let's trick him into saying something against Herod. You guys know that's how John the Baptist got killed? John the Baptist didn't actually get killed for like just preaching the gospel or preaching righteousness. He preached against Herod's marriage. And that's what caused it. And it got me thinking this week, you know, like, John the Baptist was killed for teaching on this topic. It's like, move forward with caution, okay? <laughs> so Jesus gives, uh, Jesus gives a couple of corrections. In verse 6, he says um, that, that God designed marriage as a one flesh covenant. In verse 6, it says, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Okay? He's saying you need to think about that you become one in this covenant. You become one flesh. You're no longer two. He also says in verse 6 that marriage was designed by God to be a lifelong covenant and not be broken. He says, what God therefore has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage, guys, was designed to end only by death. Okay? That's God's design. That it would end only by death. And he also corrects him that Moses didn't command them to give divorces. Moses allowed it. And he says that in that passage as well, that it was due to the hardness of men's hearts. So Jesus is actually far stricter than both camps, but certainly way stricter than the Hillel camp. And Jesus is more strict than the religious leaders of that day, and he's more strict than our culture, and he's more strict than our Christian culture in America as well on divorce. In fact, check out in Matthew 19:10 when he says all this about divorce and marriage and all that, his disciples react this way. They say, if such is the case with a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. They're like, this is scary. I could end up stuck with somebody. You know, they're freaked out. So is divorce and remarriage ever permissible in Scripture? Yes, it is. There's two grounds, um, biblical grounds, biblical reasons for a Christian to seek divorce. They're here in Matthew 5.32, so it's um, adultery in that section. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives the grounds of abandonment, abandonment by an unbeliever. Let's look at the first one. Jesus gives adultery as as a reason for a disciple to pursue a divorce. In verse 31 of chapter 5, Matthew says, It was, it was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus here isn't contradicting the Old Testament. He's contradicting the religious leaders' softened acceptance. This kind of um, no-fault type situation. And Jesus gives adultery as the only reason um, to to seek a divorce. And Jesus doesn't command it, though. And I think this is important for us to see, because I think you guys have seen, I certainly have seen, multiple cases where there was adultery in a marriage, and God worked through that, and that marriage became better than it ever was before. You guys know people like that? I know several people like that, where there was a full-on adultery that occurred, the, the innocent spouse Um, chose to stay with that marriage, the person was actually repentant, and that marriage is better than it was before. And that happens. God's that powerful. The gospel's that powerful. But the innocent spouse does have the right to seek that divorce, and nobody should force that person to stay married. They have grounds for divorce. And why does uh, Jesus say, though, that divorce causes adultery? The assumption would be that they'd remarry. You know, the assumption in the ancient culture is that they weren't going to remain single, they would remarry. Now, Paul gives abandonment as a reason as well. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 7. It's worth turning there. 1 Corinthians seven twelve. 12. Um, Paul gives a second reason, a second grounds for divorce. And he says this, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, and I'll tell you why it says that, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Paul says here, he says, I not the Lord. And it's not like Paul's going into uninspired mode, right? So he's writing, you know, he's writing scripture and then he goes, hey, this is just between you and me and this doesn't count. He's not saying that. When he says the Lord here, he means Jesus. Jesus had never spoken to this issue, this issue of a a non-believing spouse walking away from a believing spouse. And so that's what's going on here. He never addressed this situation. And so when he says um, that I say this, not the Lord, he's saying Jesus never covered this. I'm going to cover this now, but Jesus never covered it. When he says the Lord, it means Jesus. And one just side thing for you, most of the time in the New Testament when it says the Lord, it's talking about Jesus. A lot of times we take that generically, but almost always when it says the Lord, it's speaking of Christ himself. And so what was the situation? In the first century, people are coming to faith in Christ in droves. Some of them were already married. Sometimes their spouses weren't believers because they weren't believers when they got married. And so one becomes saved, the other one is not yet A believer. And so they wrote to Paul and they asked him, What should we do? Should we divorce our spouse and get a Christian one? And he's like, Whoa, 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 easy. He's like, If they want to live with you, praise God, have them live with you. Okay? Guys, we need to realize that it is really hard on non Christians when their husband or wife becomes a Christian. If you guys have ever thought about it from their side, but that would be an incredibly difficult thing to go through. So if you're a non believer, and your spouse becomes a believer, that is a great hardship. It's very hard for that non-Christian to deal with their now-Christian spouse is so excited about something and someone they can't see. And if you guys want a little more perspective on that, the best book you could possibly read is C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces. Because in that book, this thing happens, and I won't spoil the story, but there's these two sisters, and one of the sisters comes to this kind of spiritual awakening. She's seeing all these things her sister can't see, and it's just like tearing their relationship apart. It's hard. We ought to have huge compassion on, on the non-Christian spouse in those kinds of marriages. And guys, praise God if your non-Christian spouse is willing to deal with how crazy you are about Jesus. I mean, that takes a lot of understanding. That takes a lot of patience. You ought to deal with that patiently. And Paul is saying in this passage, he's saying, you know, don't be distressed about your kids, that they're not going to have two Christian parents. It says in this passage, he says that they're considered holy. Even your non-Christian spouse is considered holy. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they're saved. It means that God has a special attention toward your family because you're a believer. And so God's going to, in, in great ways, work through you for the sake of your kids. And, and don't despair about that. And we see that in the New Testament, don't we? We see that with Timothy Most likely didn't have a believing father. Later forms a really deep relationship with the Apostle Paul. And so the church come around and actually gave Timothy more of a Christian home than he would have had before. Um, One of my clients, um, you know, came to Christ a couple years ago. And her husband didn't for a while. And there was a lot of tension there about she wants to give all this money. And he's like, to what? You know, like, this is not something I believe in. And she was like, what should I do? And I said, just do what he's comfortable with. You know, God's not going to hold that against you. Like, go easy on the guy. He's, he's got this crazy evangelical wife all of a sudden. You know, you need to, you know, be understanding. And later he did come to faith, which is so awesome, just a couple years ago. But if the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay in the marriage, he says that the Christian is free to pursue a divorce. I mean, if he or she leaves, he's, that Christian is free to, to divorce and remarry, although Paul says, in the Lord, with, to a believer. And so the second reason um, for divorce or for pursuing a divorce would be if a Christian's been abandoned by an unbeliever, okay? So those would be the two cases. And and beyond these two cases, there's lots of questions, right? There's questions about, like, well, what about abuse, you know? And here's some things we can clearly say about a situation of abuse is that um, first thing to say is that no one should stay in a home where there's physical abuse, No one should stay there, okay? This is something you need to flee. If you're being physically abused, you need to flee. The church wants to help. when I say the church, I mean these people. Would you guys nod? These people would help you. They would help you to find a protected place to be, help you to get on your feet. That's what the church does for each other. So if you're in that situation, you need to to flee. You also need to report it to the police, okay? Physical abuse is a crime. This is something you report. Christians get real confused about this kind of stuff. They think, you know, you've even heard of situations in churches where there's sexual abuse, and they're like, well, we need to counsel this. We need to report this, okay? This is a crime. We report crimes. You know, we can counsel after, <laughs> but we report the crime. We want to help you with that, okay? And I do believe there are situations, and we can talk about it later, where physical abuse gives a Christian Grounds for Divorce. And we'll talk about it later. And there's lots of details I'd be happy to talk to you about later. What about this? What about that? I don't want to do that in the sermon because it would become incredibly complicated. And you guys would all be like, please stop. Okay? So we can talk about it later. But, but those are the clear cases. It would be adultery and abandonment by an unbeliever. Um, what about remarriage? Um, if someone is divorced for biblical reasons, then scripture says they're free to remarry. And, Paul, and Jesus says that when he gives this exception in verse 32. And Paul says that in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. He says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. The brother or sister is not enslaved. He has called thee to peace. And then later on it says, but you need to remarry in the Lord. Okay? Is that all clear? Is this fun or what? Okay, good. Okay. If um, if the divorce was not on biblical grounds, then reconciliation should be sought if possible. What do I mean, if possible? Um, I think this is another area where there's a lot of confusion. Um, divorces are real and marriages are real, okay? And I think that's an important concept to think about in our head. So um, if a person gets divorced, they're really divorced. There is no, they're married in God's eyes, okay? In, in, in Matthew 19:6 it says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It really is a separation of that marriage covenant. So even on biblical divorces are real divorces. Um, they're not married in God's eyes. So, for example, you have a couple, and I know about a situation like this, where um, they got divorced. Later, they decided, you know, we want to we be married again. They need to get married. Isn't that interesting? They need to get married again. They need to get married because they're married when they're married and they're divorced when they're divorced, okay? That's really important. Otherwise, the whole thing gets super confusing. And marriages, even if they're entered into in a sinful way, are real marriages. So if a person has remarried, they need to stay in that marriage. They need to be faithful to that marriage. That's a real marriage. Okay, does that all make sense? Okay. I know, it's like, I feel like one of the rabbis. (laughs) And then, (laughs) what do you do if you sinfully divorce? If you sinfully divorce, this is not the unpardonable sin, okay? Um, Jesus does equate it to adultery in this passage. So it's serious sin, but it's not an unpardonable sin. And so what you need to do is, if you haven't already, you need to repent of it, like any other sin. You need to repent of it, come to Christ, you have his death and his resurrection cleanse you from that sin. Jesus removes that sin. That's a sin that he removes and that, like I said earlier, he makes all of our deepest and most regrettable sins, he can make them like a distant memory. He removes sin. And this isn't, you know, nobody needs to carry around, you know, something the rest of their lives, carrying around some sin that they did. The gospel cleanses and frees us from that sin. Um, so, but if reconciliation is possible, it should be done. 1 Corinthians 7.10 is this. To the married I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else reconcile to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So if both of the parties have not remarried, then the focus should be on reconciling that marriage. If a marriage has occurred, there's no reconciling that marriage. Okay? That person's actually married. They need to be faithful in that marriage. Okay? Is there going to be some confusing? Do I like, divorce this person and go back to the other? It's like, no. Okay? Uh, the marriage you're in is a real marriage, and that's a marriage you need to be faithful to. What if you don't have grounds for divorce? <laughs> okay, This is the situation most of us will be in if we contemplate divorce. Most of you guys, if you later on are contemplating divorce, probably do not have biblical grounds for divorce. But it can be a very painful place, right? It can be a very rugged spot. Be things like, I'm just not attracted to her. She's just not attentive to me anymore because she only cares about the kids. She doesn't seem to care about me anymore. Um, He's not as romantic as he used to be. I feel like we just live together as roommates. I didn't write these, by the way. (laughs) We fight all the time. She's changed, right? You've changed too, you know? I've changed. I used to be fun, (laughs) didn't I? I used to be fun. I'm still fun, she says. Um, We don't have shared interests anymore. Um, Perhaps you're eyeing somebody new. I mean, that's a really common cause for people seeking divorce. Maybe you're saying, you know what, we were just married too young, you know? Or you say to yourself, you know, I married the wrong person. I didn't get my soulmate, or I didn't have the one God wanted for me. That's a real weird mental trick where you go, like, God has this one person for me, and if I miss it, then I get God's second best. That will never work, guys. The reason that won't work is it would have been messed up decades ago, centuries ago, because it works this way. Okay, so let's say you were supposed to marry this one, and you married this one, right? You got God's second best. So what happened to the one you were supposed to marry? She got God's second best. And the whole human race unravels. There's no way to do this. Like somebody would have messed this up, you know, centuries ago. Um, The the person God would have you to be with is the one you're with, okay? That's the one. Um, None of these are biblical grounds for divorce, and you shouldn't seek it. And you shouldn't seek it no matter what your feelings are telling you. Guys, do not follow your heart in these situations, follow God's word. Okay. I was talking to a guy, um, you know, that he didn't have any biblical grounds for divorce, and he's saying, I'm done, I can't take this anymore. And I said, you know, the Bible says you cannot get divorced. He goes, I know that, but I really feel like God's giving me a piece about it. And I'm like, that's not possible. God doesn't give a piece about something he clearly forbids. Like, it doesn't work that way. He doesn't talk out two sides of his mouth, right? And I remember saying to him, I said, what if God were to appear to you today and tell you to stay with her, what would you do? And he goes, well, that would be different. And I said, it's not. This is God's very word. It's as if he's speaking you to you today. This is God's word such that to disbelieve or disobey this is to disbelieve or disobey God. And so don't trust your emotions in these situations. Um, put it another way, God doesn't give peace to do something his word tells us not to do. You know, that feeling isn't from God. It can feel really strong and we can say it's the spirit and all that stuff, right? But it's not the spirit if the spirit is spokenly, is openly spoken differently in his word. Um, beware of a health-wealth gospel to marriage. You guys know what the health-wealth gospel is, right? God wants you to be healthy, and he wants you to be wealthy, and he wants you to be successful. It's very American. And if you're not getting that, you're doing it wrong, okay? So We look at Paul, and we go, like, Paul, you were doing it wrong, you know, right? Or, Jesus, you were doing it wrong. Like, everybody in the New Testament was doing it wrong, apparently. Um, We can have that mindset too, though, with marriage. We say things like, well, God wouldn't want me to stay in a marriage that makes me miserable. And I would ask you, what makes you think that? Seriously. What makes you think that? I mean, the truth is is that God has called some of us to live faithfully in very hard marriages. I mean, God's called some of us to live with chronic pain, with failed careers. God has called some of us to live in persecuted areas. I mean, last Sunday was... Persecuted church Sunday, there's people living in horrible persecuted areas. The health wealth gospel isn't real, guys. God calls us to live in very difficult places sometimes. And God has called you to live faithfully in a hard marriage, perhaps. For a time. This is a patch. You know, we all have had patches of our marriage that are very difficult. But God's called us to help you. That's the cool thing, is like as a church, God's called us to help you through that. God's called us to help your spouse through that. God's calling you to live faithfully. And covenant love. Have you guys heard the story of Hosea in the Old Testament? Okay, so the story of the prophet Hosea. He's got his own book. It's got his name on it. It's really easy to find. Okay. God did some crazy stuff in the Old Testament prophets' lives, right? He did very bizarre things to them. He told them to do bizarre things. Their lives became like performance art, right? I mean, you think of Jonah, like poor Jonah, right? Poor Jonah gets vomited out of a fish. It was partly his fault, right? Isaiah, do you guys realize that Isaiah was told to walk around naked and barefoot for three years? That's exposing. That's embarrassing. I mean, especially in that culture. But even in this one, right? Unless you're in Santa Cruz or something like that. I mean, that's not normal. He walks around naked for three years to show that, you know, that Egypt would be left naked. And then, and then Ezekiel, he's told to lay on his left side for 390 days for Israel and then for 40 days on his other side For uh, Judah, that's a really long time to lay on your side. And that was to indicate the numbers of years they'd be punished. He called them to do that. Their lives were crazy performance art. I mean, they weren't just giving words. They were like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Ezekiel was told to bake bread over a fire that was uh, burning human poop, dried human poop. And he, he said, he goes, oh, no, Lord, I can't do that. He's all, okay, you can use animal manure. You know, he like compromised with them. Jeremiah was told to buy new underwear, loincloth, to hide it in some rocks and come back after a really long time, pull it out and show it to everybody and say, look, this underwear is good for nothing, just like our country. I mean, these people were called to do bizarre things. Hosea got the worst job of all, right? He was called to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Okay, now the name's hard, but the assignment's hard too, guys, because this prostitute isn't like Pretty Woman, like Richard Gere meets Julia Roberts, and they all like go. She didn't stop working. Okay, she didn't stop her life of sin, and so you have this Hebrew prophet, the highest guy in the culture, married to a woman that everybody knows is around sleeping with everybody, right? And Gomer and, and Hosea consistently loved Gomer, Gomer, even though Gomer was consistently um, unfaithful, and she would even use his resources to pursue her sexual pleasures. Um, she even ended up having kids uh, that weren't Hosea's kids, and so God was like, okay, name this one in Hebrew, not loved, and then name this next kid, not my people, because this is not your kid. I mean, this is a crazy thing, right? I mean, these are family issues. You're like, I thought I had family issues. Like, these are family issues. And all along, guys, Hosea is, stays faithful and covenantly loves her. And what was that all about? Hosea's performance art life was about how God's chosen people, us, are all Gomer. Okay? That we are all adulterous. We are all spiritually adulterous. We have all used God's resources to pursue our sin, right? We've all used the good things God's given to pursue our sin, to cheat on him, right? That's what that performance art life was about, was to show us that we are Gomer, You know, and earlier when I said, you don't have to walk around with a scarlet letter A on you all the time. We all deserve that A, right? But God has has made a way for us to be brought back to him. Even though our sin's habitual. Even though we keep going to things that don't satisfy. He sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. God did that so that he could welcome us home. Again and again and again and again. Though we're unfaithful, again and again in the same ways, he welcomes us back again and again and again. And you know what's so cool about that? Is that kind of love, that kind of like, you know what, come home again, changes us. Doesn't it? As we see him faithfully loving us, as we see that love that he has for us, as it spiritually adulterous people, and he says, come home, come home, come home, what happens is, is we stop wanting to leave home. You know, we start to be faithful as we see His covenant love for us. And I want to tell you guys something. Your marriage is also performance art. Now, I hope to God it's not performance art in the same way Hosea's was. But it's performance art, guys. Your marriage is a story of God's persistent, gracious love for sinners. That's what it's to be. We extend each other grace in marriage again and again and again because He does for us. Marriage is about acting out the love of Jesus for each other, for the world to see. And I want to just give you a couple things real quick as we close. Just a few things that I'd say are things that I usually say to people when I'm talking to them and they're in a very difficult patch of marriage and and they want to quit. There's a couple things that I, I would say to you. I would say this. Don't run away from what God's doing in you. You know, don't run away from what God's doing in you. God, God brings people together, husbands and wives together in seemingly counterproductive ways. OK, like at first we see the difference in her or him and we're like, oh, that's so great. And it's attractive. And later it's like completely annoying. OK, and then it's infuriating. But what's God doing in that? God is doing something in your heart. You need to ask yourself, what is God up to by giving me this spouse? God did this. I don't care how you guys got together. God did this. What idols is God trying to challenge in your heart? Um, He's doing a good work in this marriage, guys. Um, Romans 8 talks about how he's he's conforming our heart to look like Christ. And so what he's doing in this marriage is you guys grind it out together. He's chiseling away, guys. He's chiseling away idols in your heart. He's got Jesus' heart here and your heart here, and he's looking at Jesus' heart, and he's chiseling away yours to make yours like his. Do you have anything in your heart that needs to be removed? Have any idols that aren't like Christ's heart? Do you? Okay, it's probably whatever caused that fight last night, right? That's the thing he's chiseling. That's what he's working on. Don't run away from that. Don't run away from what God is doing in your heart. Because what happens, and you guys probably attest to this, is you go, you know what, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And you go and you find somebody new. And you know what you do? You bring half the problem with you. You bring that same heart with you. The problem is you. And so let's focus on the spouse you have, okay? It's called redemption. Redemption is when you have something and it's jacked up and you don't just throw it away and go get something new, right? You redeem it. That's what God's doing with you. He doesn't just throw you away and go get something new. He redeems you. He's in it for the long haul. And so let's not talk about running away. Guys, you need to hear this. No marriage was ever strengthened by threats of divorce. For some reason, we think we push that button and it's going to help. Like, we threaten divorce, we pack our stuff up. Guys, no marriage was ever strengthened by threats of divorce. Guys, how does it work with God with you? Do you change because he threatens to leave you? Is that how we change? That God threatens, you know, if you do this one more time, you're out. No. We change because his covenant faithfulness, because he said he will never leave us or forsake us. And that's, no one ever grew in love by threats of being left. We grow in love because we have the security of the covenant. And so be all in and see what God does um, as he makes you both like Christ. That painful grinding that's occurring is God shaping you. Second one would be, where can you extend grace? Where can you praise something good in your relationship? I mean, we learn covenant faithfulness and covenant love by receiving it from Christ. We need to ask, where could I extend grace? You know, guys, that the gospel hard to get, right? A lot of times we think religion, and we think our works, and all. it's hard to get grace. The person that gets grace the most, or understand, I don't mean get receive, but get understand. person that understands grace the most is going to be the most likely to extend grace to others. That's the test. The test of how much you understand the grace of God will be how much are you going to extend that grace to your spouse. And I've seen marriages, guys, where there was full-on adultery, and it, well, there was repentance and it was restored to made better than, better than ever before. And then I've seen other marriages that aren't that bad that never get better. What's that about? It's about how much we get the grace of God. I mean, if I really believe that I'm a sinner and deserve right now to be in hell, but Jesus has died for me and he's consistently just give, pouring grace upon me, I'm going to be more ready to give that out. Remember Matthew 18 with the unforgiving servant where the one's forgiven that huge amount, then he finds somebody that, forgive, that, that owes him a, a little bit of money and he chokes him out. That's us in our marriage, choking each other out, not giving grace. Sometimes the reason is, is that we idolize having a perfect marriage. That's easy to do. It's easy to do in the church. We elevate what marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be all these things. So we have that as an idol. Francis Schaeffer said this. He says, sometimes the greatest deterrent to a very good marriage is the belief that you ought to have a perfect one. Isn't that true? Sometimes the greatest deterrent to a very good marriage is the belief you ought to have a perfect one. We have this idol. And social media can make that worse. It looks like everybody's constantly on a you know, Caribbean vacation, and everybody's constantly on a date night, and everybody's constantly having a wonderful time. And that's how it should be. I don't think we should post you know all the horrendous stuff. We're enjoying our lives, and we're showing people, and we're saying, hey, isn't this great? You know? It is great. But we, our hearts can do a wrong thing and become very discontent. Why don't you do this? Thanksgiving's coming, right? It's coming soon. Why don't you, every day before Thanksgiving, you write one thing you're thankful for your spouse and share it with them, right? Share it with them. I see a lot of posts where people do that kind of thing and never mention their husband or never mention their wives. Like, how about every single day leading up to Thanksgiving we do that? That would glorify God. You don't have to post it on social media. Um, you could just tell them directly. I mean they don't have to go look at it and like it, like it doesn't need to be all these steps. You can just show it to them. It will encourage your spouse and it'll build your friendship. Next thing I say is, where can I water? That's what we should be thinking about our relationships. Where can I water this? Right? Um, you've heard the saying, um, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Let me put it like Jesus saying. You have heard that it was said of old, the grass is always greener on the other side, but I say to you, the grass is greener where you water it. Right? A lot of times people are attracted by this new relationship or whatever. They're watering it. That's why it's so attractive. You're watering it. You're watering it with these text messages you shouldn't be sending. You're watering it with these, you know, things you're saying and these notes you're writing. And things. Start watering your marriage. Um, our, in our family, we're, um, we're really into succulents. We haven't actually planted any of them, so we look like a nursery. But there's tons of succulents at our house. Uh, most of our plants have thorns on them. They're going to be great when we plant them and have you guys with your little kids over and then go in the backyard. <laughs> this is going to be like this dangerous garden. Guys, a lot of us, you know, think about our marriage that way. Your, your marriage, guys, is not a succulent. This isn't something you can water once or twice a month. Like, this is something you need to water regularly. And some of us got way too comfortable and we stopped watering. And then we're like, why does this thing look like this? Not a succulent. <laughs> I need to water this, Okay. Um, what if for the next three months you think of three things you could do to regularly show your spouse love, something that you know they would love? And I love what Jamal said last week when he talked about Philippians 2. He was talking about how we'll do something for our spouse or whatever, and we'll immediately look like, did they see it? Are they going to respond? Right? That's not how watering works, right? Put a seed in the ground, you water it, you don't see anything for a long time. How about we serve, pick three things, do it for three months expecting nothing in return and see what God does. And then lastly, I want to say, consider the story of God's glory. Marriage is not mostly about our happiness. Okay, like that's the way we frame it, and it does make us happy. But it's not mostly about our happiness. What is marriage? Marriage is performance art. Marriage is acting out the love of Jesus, that the love of Jesus has for us, his unfaithful bride. And acting out that love and continuing to love and continuing to welcome. Marriage is about showing his glory. Guys, do you ever think about the story of your life? You ever do this? I don't regularly, but I started doing it recently. I was reading a book that was challenging me to do this. You ever think about it? You ever think about like watching your character from the outside and kind of writing a book about it? Would it be interesting? You know? Would you like the character It's interesting, right? Because a lot of it's the dialogue in our heads that we hear and we justify ourselves and stuff. But if we were to objectively look from the outside, guys, your story could be this. It could be, you know, we tried really hard for a few years, but we just couldn't stand each other and we moved on. Or your story could be this. Your story could be told by the two of you sitting. You're 80 years old. You're in rocking chairs, toothless, next to each other, watching your great-grandchildren play. And, and your story could be a resource to others. You could say we struggled. God challenged our idols. God showed us how to be gracious and thankful. God showed us the gospel in a deeper way. God showed us how to repent. God taught us that we need to, to water something that looks dead. Just keep watering something that looks dead. And he brought it to life. I mean, that's a story, guys, that will glorify God. That's, a story, that's how you reenact the story of Christ in the church. And that's a story, guys, that your kids and your grandkids could feed off of when they're in their difficult patches of marriage. They could feed off that story. That could be a resource to our church. This, really, the church, among other things, is a, it's a school of marriage. You see that in Titus 2. You see older women and older men helping younger men and younger women to, to love their spouses and take care of their children. This is to be a school of marriage. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you would like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.